Miami's toast. It, it's very low, but it, the rocks underneath it yeah. uh, are just porous. There is, it's a sponge. And so you can't even build a wall around Miami because the water just comes up from below. Miami is one of the most vulnerable places in the world. Wow. Chicago's okay though, right? We're 182 <laughs> meters above sea level. You're doing okay in Chicago. <laughs> Everybody from Miami's gonna move back to Chicago. <laughs> Some of them can come. <laughs> okay, so let's see. So going back to the mangroves. Mangrove forests. Coastal ecosystems and coastal cities are what we're mostly talking about today. Mangroves are coastal woods, like those in Florida's Everglades, Kenya's Ghazi Bay, and all along the coasts of Indonesia. Coastal cities are those like Miami or Jakarta, the capital of Indonesia. Jakarta is almost four times the size of Miami. It's got 11 million people in it, while Miami has less than 3 million. But both will soon be underwater. So the Indonesian government is planning to move Jakarta from Java to Borneo. Miami, on the other hand, well, it was big news there when the new governor of Florida, where Miami is located, even uttered the words climate change, and that didn't happen until 2019. Coastal ecosystems like mangroves, marshes, and seagrasses are key to meeting the climate challenge, in part because they can help us slow climate change by pulling carbon from the air and infusing it into the ocean floor, but also because they can act as buffers against rising seas. Mangroves, for example, protect us from both sudden storms and gradual erosion. They provide shelter for young fish, breeding grounds for shrimp, and wood for local villagers, all while sequestering at least four times as much carbon per hectare as regular forests do because they migrate out to sea as the ground beneath them rises. Saving mangroves is key to reversing climate change. And I wrote a lot about mangroves in the years leading up to the 2010 climate negotiations in Cancun, Mexico. That's the year I met today's guest, Steve Crooks, who is one of the world's foremost experts on the interconnected systems of mangroves, marshes, kelp, and seaweed that are constantly pulling carbon dioxide from the air, breaking it into carbon and oxygen, and infusing the carbon into the bottom of the sea. It's called the blue carbon system, a term first coined more than 11 years ago, but one that's increasingly critical to meeting the climate challenge. Man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. There's a group of us now who are proposing that the Earth has actually entered a new epoch, and that is the Anthropocene. We know that the enemy is carbon, and we know it's ugly face. We should put a big fat price on it, and of course, add to that, drop the subsidies. Earth. We broke it, we own it. And nothing is as it was. Not the trees, not the seas, not the forests, farms, or fields. And not the global economy that depends on all of these. But we can restore it, make it better, greener, more resilient, more sustainable. But how? Technology? Geoengineering? Are we doomed to live on a bionic planet? Or is nature herself the answer? That's the question we address in every episode of Bionic Planet, a podcast of the Anthropocene. 
the new epoch defined by man's impact on Earth. And today we revisit coastal ecosystems for an update on how mangroves, salt marshes, seaweed and seagrasses can be saved and managed to slow and maybe even reverse climate change. Today I'm speaking with Steve Crooks. He's an oceanographer and a sedimentologist, meaning he's a scientist who studies the seas, the sand, the soil, and all the living systems that link them together. He is, in other words, one of the world's leading experts on coastal ecosystems and wetlands. And he's advised everyone from the U.S. National Aeronautics and Space Administration, or NASA, to the Smithsonian Institution, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, or IUCN, and the Verified Carbon Standard on how to manage mangroves, salt marshes, and other aquatic systems so they can act as giant carbon sinks. He also co-edited a book called A Blue Carbon Primer, which came out last year and offers a deep dive into the biology of mangroves, marshes, and other aquatic systems, as well as how carbon moves through these systems on its way from the air into the earth. If you find today's show intriguing, I recommend picking up a copy, although as an academic work, it's kind of pricey at $60 for the paperback. The title again is A Blue Carbon Primer. Four years ago, Steve co-founded Silvestrum Climate Associates, which is the U.S. branch of European climate consultancy Silvestrum. Among the projects he is working on there, together with the government of Sindh, Pakistan, is the Indus Delta Red Plus Mangrove Project, which aims to restore 350,000 hectares of degraded mangrove forest, or a mangrove forest containing a billion mangrove trees. Yeah, I know. Lots of people are raising money these days to plant trees. It's kind of the new thing. But most of the people who started in the last year or two won't let you know if the trees they plant live, die, or even take root. But the Indus Delta Project is a Red Plus project created under the Verified Carbon Standard using methodologies that Steve helped create and that are certified by third-party verifiers. If you're a regular listener, you know that we covered Red Plus in episodes 49, 50, and 51. In a nutshell, these types of projects don't just plant a bunch of trees and say, mission accomplished. Instead, they save and restore forests using methodologies developed under carbon standards based on guidance provided by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, which represents a global consensus of the best science on the matter. And they only get paid for the trees that survive into adulthood and deliver verified ecological benefit over decades. In the second half of today's show, Steve and I will take you on a virtual flyover above the Indus Red Plus project. But we start with a quick overview of blue carbon in general, what the term means, how it evolved, and how it might be leveraged to save these critical ecosystems. Before we dive in, I wanted to remind you that Bionic Planet is listener-supported. I produce these shows on my own time and my own dime, and those dimes are pretty dear these days, which is why my production has dropped off after the pandemic hit. If you like what you hear and you want to hear more, then help me out by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash bionicplanet. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N 
com forward slash bionic planet bionic planet is all one word no dots or dashes there you can support me for as little as one dollar per episode and with a monthly cap the address again is patreon.com forward slash bionic planet if money's tight you can also help by giving me a five-star review on whichever podcatcher you access me through remember the more stars i get the more ears i get And the more ears I get, the more minds I can reach. And we have to reach hundreds of millions of minds if we're to meet the climate challenge. We can do it if we all work together. I first met Steve Crooks in 2010 at a Forest Trends workshop in Vietnam. And as we started our chat today, he reminded me that it was actually 10 years ago today that we met. Here's my interview with Stephen Crooks. I'm recording now. And uh, just to, can we just reiterate what you said a moment ago? You said you'd gotten a Facebook alert or an anniversary alert just this morning saying that you and I met exactly 10 years ago today, right? Yeah, it was exactly uh, 10 years ago to the day. Yeah, a, a harmonic convergence, I guess. The uh, It was a Katuma meeting and uh, Blue Carbon was just getting going, the, the and Forest Trends, they used to have these Katuma meetings where they'd bring international and local experts from around the world together in hot spots like you know, the Pantanal in Brazil or the Red River Delta, which is where you and I met, although we actually met in Hanoi, but to, to workshop different practices. I remember when you and I met, the World Cup was going on and we were both wandering around Hanoi looking for a place to watch the game or the match. I think Germany might have been playing. I don't remember all the details, but you know, we each ended up at the same food vendor stand because the guy had a little TV out there. And uh, I was there to cover the event for Ecosystem Marketplace, and, and you were presenting, uh, right? I mean, at, yeah. yeah, that was it. I'd been invited to the Katoomba meeting by Winnie Lau. Yes. He was at Forest Trends at the time. Um, I'd been in D.C. Uh, to meet with the World Bank, and uh, we've got a, an introduction, actually, from the Undersecretary for Climate Change from California, who was um, he was listening to this Blue Carbon uh, story that we were telling about the, the Sacramento Delta in California, and he said, oh, you, know, you should go meet with the folks in the World Bank and also the IUCN. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there was a meeting at the IUCN, and Forest Trends was there, Conservation International with ATNC and others. And uh, that's when a lot of the plotting started. And so fairly soon after that, we'd initiated the Blue Carbon Initiative with Conservation International, the IUCN, and uh, in the Government and Oceanographic Commission. And, uh, and Winnie had whisked me off to Vietnam <laughs> <laughs> to, to meet with all the folks there. So, Yeah, that was an incredible event. And you know, we recorded the public presentations, not the workshops, because they went on for hours and hours, but the, the public presentations, and they're still archived on the Ecosystem Marketplace website. I was going over some of them ahead of this call. A lot of them are related to policy issues that are very specific to Vietnam, but the scientific ideas that were being presented, they, they, still, they still hold up. I mean, a lot has changed in the past 10 years, there there are the the carbon methodologies which didn't exist back then and which do now and which you are one of many people who worked on them. But the trajectory was there 10 years ago. And I may include a link to that Katoomba meeting 
in the show notes for today's episode. Yeah, you know, and the trip down into the Red River Delta mm-hmm. was, you know, really informative too. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we drove through something like a hundred miles of what used to be mangrove systems, you know, through rice fields and we got down into shrimp yeah. farms. And then we got right to the very edge and there was this tiny, horribly degraded little remains of a mangrove. It must have only been like a few hectares in size. And... Um, and the fishermen were complaining that that mangrove was in the way of them doing their fishing, and it was the you know the last little patch, and the, the amount of degradation that was going on was just just unbelievable. But the entire delta is you know completely unsustainable because the whole system is sinking, mm-hmm. and you know there's you know there's going to be real challenges with sea level rise there. You could see how low everything yeah. was, and um, but everybody there was eking out a living either in shrimp ponds or or in, in rice fields. Yeah, it's such a, a tragedy. Even if even if they could adapt their activities, they're going to get hit with sea level rise, right? I mean, that's really not much we can do about that. Yeah. You know, they, they truly are living right on the very edge. And and so it's it's a big question about, you know, because clearly, you know, they're, they're, making, a, they're making a living. Um, they may be doing quite well. Um, but a time will come when it's going to become more and more difficult. And so how do you balance adaptation to climate change with sustaining uh, a rural economy when you're in such a vulnerable location? There's actually an interesting side story is that um, one of the the things we observed, you know, we're talking to the local government people, was that they were spending $5 million a year to dredge the channels, the Red River Channel, um, because of siltation. And we, you know, we, we talked about, well, you know, if you restore some mangroves at the back end of the delta, at the top end, what happens is that the increased tidal flows that go, are going all the way up and down the channel to get to those mangroves, they self-scour the, um, the channel. And so you could save maybe $5 million a year in, in dredging costs, which you know seemed like a good idea, but then we realized that they didn't want this good idea because the money was coming from central government to local government, and the last thing they needed was to have that money stop. So they would much rather you know pay to, to, to be dredging rather than use the money to restore the wetlands in that case. Yeah, perverse incentives are killing us everywhere. Uh, although one thing in in Madrid. Um, at last year's climate talks, and that's when we did the interview that's going to be the second half of today's show. You had talked about the Red River Delta. I don't remember if you mentioned it in the interview that's going to be the second half of today's show, because I did that a while back. But you said that it would be hard to implement a project in the Red River Delta like the one you're doing in the Indus Delta. The Red River people had challenges that would make it harder. And I don't remember how you phrased it. Can you maybe do a quick compare and contrast between the two? That's a good question. And um, it really, you know, the Red River Delta and very populated systems like that is going to take a lot of planning, you know, integrated adaptation. Um, what are you going to do with sediment management? Where are you going to put your wetlands? Um, the situation in Pakistan is somewhat easier 
and because there's so much space, you know, it's a very sparsely populated setting, lots of open space area where mangroves are going to migrate. And um, you still need to work and develop the adaptation strategies for the local communities who are going to have to deal with sea level rise. Uh, but we have the space to do that in the Indus, which makes that really interesting. Maybe I can fast forward to Madrid now, too. That was the 25th conference of the parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, UNFCCC, COP25. Chile was the president of the COP this year, but the actual meeting took place in Madrid and you know because of the unrest in Chile, and they were calling it a blue COP, meaning they were going to focus on oceans. I came in expecting this idea of a blue COP or a focus on oceans to mean focusing on how we need to protect the oceans because they're absorbing most of the excess heat, like 90%, and, you know, and they're suffering as a result. They're also absorbing all this carbon and they're getting acidic as a result of that. So I came in expecting the whole focus to be on how do we protect oceans. But there was also all this talk about how oceans can protect us, how we can use them as carbon sinks, continued carbon sinks. And a lot of it was stuff that you and I have been talking about for 10 years, not just mangroves and seagrasses, but seaweed and kelp and micro microalgae. And I have to admit, I felt like my layman's naivety was vindicated a bit in Madrid because I've always thought that we should be harvesting the algal blooms from the Gulf of Mexico, for example, for biofuel or something, you know, taking something bad that's happening and doing something good with it. And every time I open my mouth about this at a marine conference or something, I remember one in particular in Washington, D.C. was also a Katuma meeting focused around the Chesapeake Bay, and I brought this idea up, and I got lectured by a lot of the policy guys on the dangers of unintended consequences, you know, that if, if we tried to make this the these algal blooms into something good, it might encourage or it might discourage the discouragement of farmers it might encourage farmer it might it might take the pressure off of farmers to reduce the amount of runoff going into the rivers and streams that feed into the gulf so it might have a perverse effect is what a lot of people kind of threw back at me and i get that um you know these are complex systems and our own society is a complex system embedded within a complex biological system. And we don't want to go off half-cocked and make a bigger mess of things. We've done that way too many times. Um, you know, it's kind of like the federal funding for dredging that you alluded to earlier. But when I got to Madrid, all of these issues were suddenly huge. Everybody was talking about them. Every, you know, everybody was talking about kelp farming and microalgae and seaweed and and one that I never heard of, which is whale carbon. I know you said in our emails that whales were beyond your area of expertise. You didn't want to comment on it. But for listeners, I'll just say that whales eat tons and tons of plankton. And then they die with about 30 or 35, I forget how many tons of carbon in their skeletons each. And then they, they sink to the bottom. The carbon stays there for centuries. And it could end up, you know, ends up to being a huge amount. So saving whales is a very popular climate issue now. And I'd never heard of it before I got to Madrid. And, and where I'm going with this in a roundabout way is that I came into Madrid thinking I knew what blue carbon was. You know, mangroves, seagrasses, salt marshes. 
then I thought this other stuff, the kelp farming and everything was next generation. And now it all seemed to be bundled together. And I'm not sure where we draw the line between ocean carbon, if there is such a thing, and blue carbon, and how it all fits together. And also how the thinking has evolved over the past 10 years. Are we talking about kelp farming now because the science has finally evolved? Or has the science always been there and policy is just now catching up? The, the, the concept of blue carbon itself really reflects the extraction of CO2 from the atmosphere or coastal waters, near surface waters, but then the deposition within sediment where it goes into long-term storage. So we have to be very careful and about how we think about oceans because you're right, you know, the oceans absorb so much CO2 out of the atmosphere, but it, it's, it's leading to a buildup of acidity. You know, that's not the blue carbon aspect of this. The important part is getting it out of the ocean and into sediment or getting it out of the atmosphere and into sediment. And so the discussions have been evolving over the last 10 years, you know, back in the, the days of Kyoto, there was reference to coastal marine ecosystems, but nothing was really done about that. There was a, a strong focus on, uh, mostly on forests, uh, to some degree on, on soils. And, uh, and the oceans were left to one side, the coastal marine ecosystems were left on one side. But then, uh, around about 10 years ago, the report by the IUCN and, and UNEP focused, you know, really trying to bring back the attention again on, well, you know, we should be thinking about these marine ecosystems. And, um, and that's, that's kind of where it began. We started getting our feet wet, thinking about, well, okay, there are terrestrial frameworks being developed for climate change mitigation which at the, at the, at the UNFCCC level, people were becoming more comfortable with. If we'd, if we'd gone to oceans, everybody would have, you know, that would have, that would have been a non-starter. People would have freaked out because it's a whole new concept. Uh, and so we, we began just getting our toes wet a little bit, moving down slope and started dipping into the coastal marshes, uh, the mangroves, the tidal forests, the seagrasses, the salt marshes, because the story was, the science was the clearest but really from a policy perspective, people could get their feet wet and still use terrestrial frameworks such as RED um, to capture this and bring it into, into a policy context. And now, you know, now that we're comfortable about that and the science is solidifying further, now we're starting to think more about the flows and the broader ocean systems and where they fit in. So it's, been, it's a gradual trend towards you know, expanding our knowledge and including more ecosystems. That's kind of what this blue carbon primer that you co-edited says, too. Um, one other thing that I'm not yet clear on, and, and I apologize if it's in the book, um, I'm bouncing around. It's a, pretty, it's a pretty challenging work, and some of the chapters are more technical than others. And So this, this may be answered in there. It may have gone right over my head. But what happens when a mangrove dies? I mean, you know, these things have been laying down carbon for centuries. The carbon's in the soil which the trees are holding in place, does all this carbon that these mangroves have injected into the ground, does it come out when they die or, or does it stay down there? Can we talk about that a bit? You know, let, let's you know, even think about the bigger scale and then we'll, we'll dive down into the mangroves. So, you know, if we think over 20 million years, you know, 20 million years ago was a much warmer planet. And, you know, scientists have been thinking about, well, you know, what took us into these warming and cooling cycles sensitive to Milankovitch, Milankovitch cycles. 
And one of the interesting things is that the Delta Just to Higgs clarify, system, the Milankovitch cycles are the Ice Age. Cycles. Yes, you know, driven by you know the the um, the wobble, the, the wobble of the Earth, the wobble in the um, the orbit of the Earth around the Sun, and it leads to, to warming and cooling cycles. So it's a big expanse of glaciers, mostly glaciers at the poles. And uh, but what about CO two? And so CO two over the last twenty million years has been gradually extracted from the atmosphere. You know, within you know, as part of a large trend, and one of the forces for that has been these big deltas, you know, mangrove systems, and coastal wetlands, where CO two has been extracted from the atmosphere, goes into the plants, goes into the soil, but deltas are a way of getting carbon buried really deep, and it eventually ends up down in what we call the lithosphere, you know, in, in the rocks which becomes, you know, your source of fossil fuels ultimately in the long time frame. So if you actually do a, you know, do a calculation of how much CO2 has been extracted by the world's largest deltas around the world, you, you come back to, you know, removing something like 100 ppm out of the atmosphere over, over 20 million years. Whoa, whoa, 100. Sorry, but yeah, uh, ppm, first of all, that's parts per million, and, and we're, at, we're at 280 ppm or were at 280 ppm before the industrial revolution but we're over 400 now so 100 ppm is huge yeah yeah so that's enough to drop it down of course there are other things going on as well but it's it's fascinating so these these coastal ecosystems have been this this extractor of co2 from the atmosphere for millions of years of course now we've we've massively modified most of the big deltas of the world so they're not no longer providing that function that they once did. So the mangroves themselves, you know, they're, they're really cool ecosystems, trees which, which grow at the edge of the sea. And um, as sea level rises, you know, they, if the sea level rise is not too high, they will build up in, in location and so deposit carbon within soils that accumulate uh, beneath them. And as a little bit of sea level rise is actually a good thing, you know, a few millimeters, it leads to the accumulation of organic soils, which may be in parts of the world, maybe 10 meters deep. And uh, commonly, they may be about three meters deep. Um, if sea level rise is higher, then they have to have space to migrate landwards. And, um, and then you get into the question, well, what happens when mangroves die? You, know, you brought up that really good question. It de- well, it depends on, on you know, what the driver of the, the death is. If mangroves die because somebody chops down the, the forest, uh, well, of course, the biomass you know, goes, into, goes back to the atmosphere at, at some point. Um, the soils get destabilized. You know, you might lose, you start to lose the, maybe the top 20 centimeters if it's uh, just clear cutting. But if you're converting them to shrimp ponds, then you're, you're digging down into those organic soils and you can lose a meter to two meters worth of carbon back to the atmosphere within a few decades. And in fact, you know, that carbon may have taken thousands of years to accumulate. And so the emissions part of the curve is much steeper than what it is, the, the gradual um, sequestration under a natural system. So that's why there's a big emphasis on trying to conserve existing intact ecosystems, because the emissions part of it is, is, is so rapid. And, and that's why mangroves account for something like 0.7% of all forests, but at 1.10% of all emissions associated with deforestation came from mangroves. Yes. You know, it's, yeah, something of that order. And... Um, and that's because they sit on these organic soils. You know, a lot of, lot of um, terrestrial forests sit on very shallow soils, no organic content in them. 
you know, and so that's why many of the you know, things like the Red Program and the way people have thought about terrestrial forests is they, they focused on where the big stocks were, and that was in the trees. Um, but, you know, when you think about uh, swamps which forest on organic soils, on wetlands, then you, when you think about peatlands, forested peatlands, most of the carbon is in the soil, and the trees are actually a relatively small part of that. And that holds true for mangroves. You know, many mangrove systems, even the dwarf mangroves, which might only be maybe three foot tall. Um, well, actually, the biomass could be the same as a, as, a, as a tall mangrove system because of the density of the, of the plants. But even with a tall mangrove, you know, the, the most of the carbon is actually in the soil than, than the biomass. And so we, we tend to miss a lot of that. Can yeah. we now differentiate between the main coastal ecosystems. We, we've talked a lot about mangroves, but you've got tidal marshes, seagrasses, and peatlands. Can you differentiate among these four different types? Yeah, so the coastal ecosystems are a continuum, and um, it's, it's, it's a mosaic of, of habitat that, you know, it goes down from the terrestrial, let's say, forests, and upland areas, and then as you get down into the wetlands, you get into, you may get into coastal swamps, many parts of the world, you get into peat swamps. And then you get to the edge where it gets more saline and you get down into either tidal marshes or you get into mangroves. Mangroves are found in the tropics. Uh, those species um, are frost intolerant. And so when you move towards the temperate areas, they get um, knocked back by frost. And so where you, would, where you would find mangroves in the, in the tropics, you find marshes, which are grasslands um, in, in temperate areas. And then offshore, you get the seagrasses. So it's a continuum of ecosystems. Um, not all coastal peatlands formed from mangroves, per se. They may have formed um, uh, at the same time. Uh, somehow, you know, when you think about the massive coastal uh, peat domes of uh, Southeast Asia, uh, often they were underlain by mangrove systems, which built up starting around about you know, six, six to 8,000 years ago. They, they built up. And then because it rained so much, uh, the organic soils just kept accumulating. And uh, they built these huge domes which of, of organic soils, which might be six or eight meters tall. And, of course, that's where all the, um, the, the palm plantations are going in. And, um, and then, of course, you get into to northern uh, latitudes, Alaska or Scandinavia or Scotland, where, where because the land is actually moving up uh, there because the release of the, the, the ice, treats, ice sheets retreated back. And uh, so the, the land rebounds and moves up. And there you get actually things like seagrasses and salt marshes, which find themselves high and dry. But again, because it's a wet climate, they, they get taken over and become peatlands. So you find sequences of peat soils with, with maybe marshes and, and the like underneath them. You know, one thing we hear a lot about is when the tundra thaws and all of these peatlands that are frozen below start to melt as well, we'll get this huge methane bomb. And methane traps its 80 times as much heat as carbon dioxide does in the short term. Can that be countered by aggressively planting tidal marshes on top of these melted peatlands as soon as the thaw begins? Or is that just like a pipe dream? Is that just wishful thinking, me not knowing what I'm talking about? No, no, because most, most of those ecosystems, are the, the, the boreal um, soils are mostly terrestrial. 
And so there's, there's nothing we can do there, and certainly not for mangroves because it's, it's waiting cold. Um, you know, when you get into those ecosystems, they're more, more at the response side of the equation. You know, if we don't deal with our keeping things, uh, temperatures under control, we're just going to have this massive outflow of both methane as the soils warm and you start to get uh, microbial processes, but also CO2 emissions when the soil's dry. And so it, it's going to be one of those big feedback mechanisms which are going to lead to more warming. And so that's how things get out of control. When you look at, when you look at warming and cooling cycles you know, through the geological record, you, you, you notice that things move relatively quickly from one state to another. It's not this slow, gradual transition. It's, it's actually a rapid turnover from one state to the next. And these cycles, such as we see with the uh, thawing or the, or the production of uh, boreal peatlands, are part of this feedback that either leads to warming or cooling. Yeah, so we've got to stop it or it's game over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's certainly going to be, yes, yeah. It'll be rough. How, how about the other ecosystems and seagrasses and tidal marshes? Is it the same issue as with mangroves in that the carbon that's being captured is not what we see on the surface, but way down in the soil? Well, we've done the accounting, for instance, the IPCC wetland supplement. It's been, you know, we thought about it very simplistically. Only a certain number of ecosystems, uh, atmosphere or nearshore waters, plants, soil. And, um, and, you know, we can quantify those stocks and stock changes. Um, but ecosystems like seagrasses, you know, they don't hold a great deal within the soil. Some do, you know, the Posidonias out there hold, hold, hold a lot. But seagrasses are expansive. But all of these ecosystems are taking, as well as taking out this atmosphere and burying some of the residual within the soil, they're transporting it laterally. And so a lot of carbon is being exported and either going into dissolved form within the ocean or it goes and gets buried somewhere else. And we're totally missing all of that within these equations. Can we talk about that a bit? Uh, how when you talk about this lateral movement, where it's captured, where does it go, where does it end up? Yeah. So let's you know let's if we expand our definition of blue carbon ecosystems now to include uh, something that's more obvious, like uh, like a kelp bed, you know, a kelp forest. Now kelp it grows on rocks, and so you know it. Kelp is incredibly productive. You know, it, it, it produces so much biomass each year. And a lot of that recycled through the water column and back to the atmosphere. Uh, but uh, some of the research that's been going on in the last few years is, is highlighting, well, you know, maybe a large amount of that carbon, as, as, these, as these fawns, as they're called, break off and, and float away, they get dispersed across the near shore and even go down into the deep ocean, where um, maybe half that carbon certainly, you know, maybe 10, 20, 30% of it gets buried. And so they're constantly shedding uh, particulate uh, carbon into the water column around them where it settles down and, and sinks and gets buried. So now we have to think about two things. One, you know, can we conserve the kelp in this case and maintain that extraction from the water column, which is then filtering through the ecosystem? But then what do we do about where it lands up? You know, if it's landing up on a seabed where we are trawling seabed all the time, then that, that carbon's going to get, um, you know, redispersed and constantly broken down by, by microbial action and oxygen. Um, so can we manage areas better so that the sinks are protected 
which allow for, for carbon accumulation there. So we're starting to get into these more complicated aspects of, of, of carbon management. And that's why when we think about things like marine protected areas, it gets really interesting. You know, people are starting to think about where the marine protected areas fit into NDCs, for example. Well, you know, they fit on both the adaptation side because, you know, marine protected areas leads to improved fisheries, etc. But it also provides a management framework for the for its carbon storage function, which is on the mitigation side of carbon management. And so we're starting to connect the dots there. Yeah, but you're not defining terms. <laughs> Sorry. Um, a marine protected area, just for the listeners here, it's, it's an area where you restrict human activity, like you say, no fishing. And you, you know, and other other activities like that, and you do it for the common good. Maybe you're doing it to ensure there's more fish for the future, or just to conserve. But you're basically saying no go here, or these certain activities don't happen here. You also mentioned NDCs; these are nationally determined contributions. That's essentially the climate action plans the countries have submitted under the Paris Agreement. And we should also differentiate between mitigation and adaptation. Mitigation is slowing climate change or hopefully reversing it. Adaptation is adapting to it. And it's important to emphasize, as you do, that these coastal systems deliver both mitigation and adaptation. I guess the question I have is, when it comes to mitigation, we've talked about saving or reviving mangroves and marshes, but... What kinds of interventions can we do in these other systems like kelp farms and, and microalgae? I mean, you know, the ideas have been there forever, but in the last few years, it's gone from stuff that people always talk about in bars, but never in policy <laughs> discussions to, yeah, to, to stuff that's everywhere. I'm sure you, you scientists are always talking about it in classrooms, but it's always been next level, always too uncertain, always like, yeah, that's really interesting stuff, but you know what? No one really takes it seriously. Now it's everywhere. So I guess I have two questions here. One is, uh, what kinds of interventions can we do? Do we just get out of the way, let nature take its course, or or are we actively managing these systems? Um, And also I mentioned my my pet idea of going down into the Gulf of Mexico, where you've got these big dead zones because of all the nutrients coming down from the farms in the Midwest to the U.S. and just taking all the seaweed and harvesting it, using it as biofuels or, or food, you know, making it a form of mariculture. I know that not all seaweed is edible, but a lot of it is. I mean, there's all this stuff out there, all these ideas flying around. And I went from from hearing people tell me that my own ideas were out there and a symptom of my naivety to feeling like all of a sudden people are taking things that I was told are just pipe dreams and run with them. And I just don't know how much of it's realistic, how much of it is next generation and how much of it is, is just fantasy, you know, or, or, or how much of it is precise enough to support through carbon markets if, if, that, if that's what's needed to make them happen. Um, I threw a lot out there, but I hope you can run with it. You've been pretty good at that. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. And, um, and you're right, you know, it, it always has been felt as maybe next generation or unfeasible. Um, but I think really, you know, the, the, the Paris Agreement really opened the door to thinking about coastal marine ecosystems more holistically. And then the Ocean Pathway, which came out of COP23, 
and um, led by led by Fiji. Um, so it stimulated a lot of interest to try and move things forward. The the blue carbon work and the blue carbon initiative activities really provided, I think, a, a bridgehead to think about because this was established. It was within the IPCCs, within the greenhouse gas accounting, and it provides a way that I think we can start to think about these other ecosystems. How can we broaden it to include these other types of ecosystems? What quantification do we need to do so that we can develop our default values, our way of quantifying emissions and removals associated with the management of them? The NDCs, again, were important because they provide the, um, the signal that a country is serious about managing its greenhouse gases in certain ways. And so if, if they're, you know, one of the, I think 153 countries have some form of blue carbon ecosystem, something like 70 countries have all three of the primary ecosystems and then other countries have you know, the kelps as well. So that's a lot of countries who can be doing something with their coastal ecosystems. Um, the first thing we can do is manage them more holistically. We might not know the quantification yet, but that if you're managing ecosystems better, be it forests, soils, marine ecosystems, you're not going to be having a negative impact on greenhouse gas emissions. You're most likely going to be having a positive impact. You know? and, uh, so that's a good thing. So we can, we, can, we can build on the initiatives that countries have been going through, such as developing marine protected areas, conserving ecosystems, think about green infrastructure, um, and work on those adaptation measures, those livelihood measures. At the same time, we can be improving our quantification. So we'll get a better sense of how, you know, what is the quantification around kelp? Where does Maori culture fit into this? How does managing the seabed fit into this? We will we'll improve that. But it doesn't mean we really have to wait till the quantification is, is perfect. We can work on the management side and, and get those, those protocol, those procedures and those institutional arrangements all set up. Um, Right. So, yeah, start taking care of it now while we can because it's it's the right thing to do. And the quantification comes later for national carbon accounting under the Paris Agreement or whatever comes after it. And then maybe, maybe for supporting activities through market mechanisms if necessary. I mean, if it, if it turns out that local people would have to incur a cost if they're providing the carbon sequestration for the rest of us, we should compensate them somehow. Um, or are these like win-wins, like with nutrient management in farming where the co-benefits pay for themselves, so there might not be a need for market mechanisms, or maybe there's not enough certainty to do offsetting but there might be some other kind of support that we have to do or should do to make them happen. Well, you know, we, we really want to try and find those win-win situations and, and support those. You know, that's why uh, marine protected areas are really coming to the fore because, you know, they're coming about because people, countries, communities want to manage their fisheries in a more sustainable manner. And they realize that, you know, that's, that's not been happening, but that if you have marine protected areas, you can sustain a viable fish population that everybody benefits from. Well, if you're doing that, you can include carbon management at the same time. It's clearly a win-win situation for all involved. And, um, you know, a lot of the, the coastal ecosystems which have been lost have been because of a single uh, actor who was gaining something from a short period of time. You know, the, the shrimp ponds which have went in might have a 
in peatlands particularly, they might have a life cycle, a life cycle about 10 years. Other places, it's a longer life cycle. Um, but, you know, that's kind of slash and burn agriculture, which is having massive impacts on coastal communities who are dependent upon local fisheries, and now they don't have the fisheries anymore. So how can we better manage our coastal ecosystems and try and connect a lot of the dots here? You know, you mentioned mariculture earlier on. That, that really is nascent technology, but it's really interesting because, you know, can we grow various types of algae that have a, a carbon benefit where they're shedding carbon through the ecosystem? You know, you might be growing it on floating platforms and it's releasing carbon into the atmosphere, yet you, um, you might be producing other uh, products, food products, uh, or biofuels, or or replacements for oils that are that, you know are, that are devastating. Uh, other types of coastal wetlands where people grow, like palm, is there something you can grow from mariculture? And so I think the opportunities there for business models are really interesting. So you know we are working right now with a company called Offsetters and working with the um, the First Nations uh, communities of British Columbia. And we're starting to look there at whether how to think about marine protected areas, where does mariculture, which they're already doing, where does that fit into these kind of questions? And then another organization was talking to us yesterday about the same sort of thing in the tropics. The Scandinavians are interested in it. The, you know, the Chinese and the Koreans have been doing mariculture for a long time. And, and I must admit, you know, the, um, the, the various seaweeds that we eat for breakfast when you know, in China and, and uh, in Korea are really tasty. So I think that there's definitely a model there. There's a business model that we can really be expanding on. Can we get more of a circular economy around these more sustainable uh, processes? Of course, and there are also all these complicating issues about which types of seaweeds we cultivate. You know, are we then creating another imbalance? Yeah, it's, it's a rabbit hole. One, one thing we touched on that I'd like to explore before moving to the Madrid interview is the role of NDCs, nationally determined contributions or climate action plans under the Paris Agreement, and how these NDCs accelerated the emergence of blue carbon. We saw this on the forestry side, and I've covered it pretty extensively, but I haven't covered it in blue carbon. What I'm talking about is that international negotiators at the climate talks in the UNFCCC, they weren't paying huge amounts of attention to blue carbon or to forestry or to agriculture. Focus was all on fossil fuels. Not all, but, you know, it was predominantly on fossil fuels until countries started submitting their NDCs, their climate action plans. And then all of a sudden we saw all these countries saying, we're going to reduce emissions by saving the forest or by shifting to climate smart agriculture or improving the way we manage mangroves or we're going to adapt to climate change through management of these same ecosystems or these same practices. Um, I know this was a big surprise in the forestry and farming sectors, and I assume it was the same in the blue carbon world, yeah, right? It was. You know, it was a very pleasant surprise. You know, there, there was a lot of energy building up around Paris. The, the wetland supplement had already come out the year before, and um, so countries were becoming aware. The Coalition for Rainforest Nations had been broadcasting the message about mangroves, conservation of national IUCN, um, IOC uh, of UNESCO. And, um, and so when there was recognition of 
blue carbon ecosystems or coastal and marine ecosystems or mangroves. Some countries mentioned individual habitat types. It was the, 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 um, the terms used were all over the board, um, but that didn't really matter because they were talking about improved management of coastal ecosystems, which is the key part of it. And it really did provide um, some energy towards you know, further work going forward after that. Most of the thinking was on the adaptation side, on the livelihood side, and that's fine. You know, because as, we, as we've been talking, you know, the, if you improve the management, you lead to better outcomes in terms of greenhouse gases. And as we're looking to going into this next round of NDCs, countries are starting to ask how can they be more ambitious um, about including these coastal ecosystems. And there's a lot of interest now in countries, including mangroves, but other ecosystems, marshes, seagrasses, within their greenhouse gas inventories, which is a, which is a critical step, really, on the mitigation side of an NDC. Um, once you have it in an inventory, you're starting to recognize how management actions can have a positive or negative effect on your, on your carbon stocks or coastal systems. So it's been hugely positive. Um, but at the same time, countries are also cautious because they, they don't want to overcommit to something that they can't achieve. And so it's, it's a really interesting discussion right now about how do countries balance that. And, you know, and, and as, as we've been talking about this, you know, the way of balancing that is, you know, recognize it, move forward on the adaptation side. You can improve the qualification as you're heading towards sort of 2024 and updates in that regard. So continue to make progress. Um, maybe don't commit to um, particular greenhouse gas targets unless you feel confident in the numbers within your country. Um, but you can improve the qualification going on. The important thing is to continue to make progress. We'll hear more from Steve Crooks in a few minutes as we conduct a virtual flyover of the Indus Red Plus mangrove project in Pakistan. Now, I don't have a travel budget, so I couldn't get to Pakistan myself. I did make it to year-end climate talks in Madrid, where Steve had a nifty video of the project on continuous loop. It was a promo video without a lot of context, but we sat down and kind of talked through what we were seeing, and you'll hear that in a minute. If you're wondering why it took me so long to get this up, well, quite frankly, I couldn't afford to do it sooner. The one complaint I get most often is that I don't do enough episodes. And the reason is that they take time, and time is money. I put a lot of work into sounding like I know what I'm talking about, and I want to generate more episodes, but I also don't want to just phone them in. If you like my work and you want more of it, and if you want me to improve it by maybe getting a good sound guy or something, then help me out by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N forward slash bionic planet. There you can support me for as little as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. The address again is patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. If money's tight, you can also help just by giving me a five-star review on whichever podcatcher you access me through. Remember, the more stars I get, the more ears I get. And the more ears I get, the more minds I can reach. And we have to reach hundreds of millions of minds if we're to meet the climate challenge. We can do it if we all work together. I recorded this next segment in Madrid as we sat in a hallway watching a video on Steve's iPad. I wasn't sure if it would work, but I actually think it does. It sounded pretty good to me, better than I thought. You can be the real judge. 
You open up by saying that there was this issue with uh, construction, right? Yeah. And the construction issues upstream are what caused the mangroves to disappear. Yeah, so the, the Indus Delta is uh, the fifth largest delta in the world. So, you know, it's really big. And uh, the mangrove is the seventh largest mangrove in the world. Mangrove uh, forest. Mangrove forest, yeah. Not, not a single tree, but mangrove <laughs> forest. But over the last, you know, 50 to 100 years, there's been a lot of upstream construction of dams and re rerouting of water and uh, to go to agriculture. So the Indus River system has been completely, you know, replumbed. And that's a couple of, couple of effects on the delta. The water doesn't get to the delta during the dry season anymore. It only flows during the, the, the wet season and big events. And uh, the sediment supply, which is like an, an enormous sediment supply of something like 400 million tons a year, has been cut down to next to nothing. So there's been this drastic effect on the, all the way through the system, but all the way down to the delta. But my understanding on mangroves is that it's, it's this hydrology that impacts the trees. You're planting trees where the hydrology has changed. Shouldn't you be first dealing with the hydrology, or has that been done already? Maybe there'll be some intervention to improve the hydrology of the whole system. What's happening right now is because of the lack of sediment, there's some erosion at the bottom taking place. They're losing mangroves there. And where the fresh water is not flowing anymore, like particularly around the margins, which is salinizing, they're losing mangroves there. So they're kind of condensing down towards the center. What's happened with the agriculture in the middle is that you know people moved in and they put rice fields in and the people, they live off the rice that they grow and the fish that they catch. And with the loss of the water, those rice fields are salinizing. And so it's creating a space where mangroves can go back into where those rice fields are. And what the Sindh uh, Forestry Department are doing is they're trying to reconnect and provide more fresh water to the remaining rice fields and then restore mangroves on the abandoned rice fields and, and help the people that way. And when I look at the planting, it looks very geometrical here. Is there a reason for that? It looks like a hair plantation. You know, you've got them. So is that, I mean, I always thought that when you're restoring a forest, the trees should be clustered in, in, or something. Or is that more of a mixed forest? Well, but, this is one of the kind of things I guess you see, particularly in, in South Asia. It's forestry people who are coming in and doing these mangroves projects. And, uh, you know, the the, the commissioner of the, the forestry uh, d department there in Sindh, he's been doing this actually for 30 years. Mm -hmm. They come from a traditional forestry uh, and they just plant in rows. And when we were there, he said, you know, these beautiful rows of mangroves. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, one way it, it is helpful in that, you know, when, you're, when, you're, when they're explaining to people that they did actually come in and plant, you can see it is a plantation. You know, it's not that they're just showing people a mangrove and pretending this way it was. So it does have a validation benefit to it. But I think ecologically, you're right, you know, they'd be better to cluster trees and the like. Mm -hmm. Okay. And let's continue on here. So guys are coming down a river. Now, what have we got here? Looks like you've got these bridges. When, when the mangroves come in, this would be like a nice little boardwalk. So there's a couple of things that we're seeing there. One was a fishing vessel. That's from the village of uh, Kitibunda. Mm -hmm. And that's right in the middle of the mangroves. And so that's, that's one of the places where the people are living. And uh, the, the people either fish in the channel or they go out into deeper water. And so they're fishing right there. I'll mention also that the, what's really interesting here is that the Sindh Forestry Department offer people the opportunity to have shrimp ponds or aquaculture ponds instead of fishing. And they prefer to go fishing. Which because is, it's their culture. It's, it's their yeah. culture. And so it's actually helpful because it's not destroying the delta with these shrimp ponds. 
the boardwalk that we saw there is uh, it's actually put in uh, where the forestry department have their nursery for uh, growing seedlings and so it's just an access point in and out but it's a nice access point for seeing the sites but the, you know the, the delta out there is completely rural there's no boardwalks in most of the places or any kind of access like okay. that. Okay so is that James Cairo's uh, mangrove restoration project in Gazi Bay and they had created a beautiful boardwalk mm-hmm. that you could walk out through and I just as uh, to, to draw an ecotourism I thought maybe that's what this was this is this is purely a functional yeah, that's, that's purely functional. There, there is scope here for ecotourism. It, it, the the delta is beautiful. It is really, really. It's like imagine the Mississippi Delta. It's that kind of scale. It's enormous. You see these crazy things like they have herds of camel walking around the delta and uh, water buffalo, and uh, and actually part of the management strategy because the, the the camel are, are brought in by the villagers is to. Um, direct where you can actually feed the camels and protect other mangroves from grazing, overgrazing. Mm-hmm. Okay, maybe you could tell me a little bit about this area, set the stage a little bit more. We kind of plunged in. Okay. So this is the Indus Delta, and it's uh, it's in Pakistan. It flows all the way through from the Himalayas down to almost the Indian border. And it has an enormous flow of water. I forget what the number is right now, but it gets a very large flow, massive sediment supply, and it feeds all the way through Pakistan till it gets down to the coast. Mangroves capture, just like any tree, CO2 from the atmosphere. It goes into the biomass. Some of that biomass, either through the roots or falling leaves, ends up in the sediment. And as these mangroves build up with sea level rise, it gets trapped in, trapped in the sediment. And the mangroves will migrate too, right? Yeah, they, you know, they, they occupy a certain niche an elevation just above mean, mean sea level through to the elevation of the highest tides. Mm-hmm. And so if sea level changes relative to the ground elevation, then they'll migrate with that. So if you're like the Indus Delta here, which is pretty barren at the back, as sea level rises, they'll migrate inwards on landwards uh, on back into what is now upland areas. Are there people there? What's, what are they going to bump into? <laughs> I mean, is it? Well, you know, it, it's it, this this area is pretty sparsely populated. Yeah. You know, people have been moving out because of the salinization. So you get you get you get villages, you get small towns, you get agriculture, you get a lot of abandoned agriculture, and you get a sort of upland scrub, scrub shrub type of areas. Mm-hmm. And so it's actually a system that has very little infrastructure in it. And what benefits come to people of having these mangroves migrating inward like this or migrating across their land? These mangroves are providing a lot of valuable fish habitat. The, the local villagers, you know, they're dependent upon fish. They fish for subsistence living and they also sell it. So living right within the mangroves is, is right with their food supply. And they, they recognize actually the value of the, the mangroves in terms of food. They also get some levels of protection uh, of the mangroves from waves. And one of the villages that we visited, they saw, for instance, their, their rice fields where the mangroves are being planted were protected from wave activity, where before they had to continuously repair the mud berms that were keeping the water out from the rice fields. And now, are these people giving up the rice fields? As well, I mean, eventually the rice fields will become mangroves, or is that? Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's going to be a process of a continuing adaptation. Sea levels rising. The soils are salinizing because they're losing the water. People are migrating out of the system. You know, they're moving to Karachi and, and other places. The Sindh Forest Department is trying to reroute some water into this more condensed rice field area to, to maintain the rice fields. And as part of the deal, as well as getting paid to plant and look after the mangroves, they're getting mangroves back, which, which supports the fisheries. So they're, you know, and they're going to get other uh, benefits as well. The, the project 
here is going to bring in some medical facilities, school facilities, and that kind of thing. So the project's trying to improve the quality of life for them, but with climate change, they're going to be faced with these pressures of sea level rise uh, ongoing. And how high above sea level are they? Oh, they're right at it. You know. So they're really going to, this is going to be gone in a few years, right? Yeah, I mean, how, yeah. How quickly can the mangroves migrate? Can they migrate fast enough to keep up with the sea level rise? Uh, yeah, in an area which is flat like this, yes, they can. You know, uh, right. You know, because uh -huh. there's a lot of space and it's gradual. Like the slope here is maybe one in 5,000 or one in 1,000. So a meter of sea level rise, you know, you, you've got kilometers of, of space that you can migrate in with here. Okay. And how, how high is the elevation over, the, over those, those, those kilometers? Oh, it's really flat, you mm -hmm. know. So let's say a one in 10,000, so one meter up would be 10 kilometers inland. And so, and that, that delta goes out for like 50 kilometers. Wow, okay. Yeah. Now, and this is all being paid for through carbon finance, is that, what, what, what's paying for this? Well, originally, um, they, were, they had financing from the World Bank, and maybe even before that, it was just internal money within the forestry department. And um, so they've been doing it on a shoestring. And um, the actual project costs are relatively low. It's, you know, less than, less than a few dollars per hectare to replant these mangroves. What's really interesting about it is that the mangrove planting, in many parts of the world, you actually grow the trees to the age of two, and then you, you, you plant them at that age. But here, the commissioner is very thoughtful about where he puts the mangroves. He waits till the elevations are right, which is you know, one of the critical things. And um, they're just going out, and every three meters, they're just planting a seedling in the ground. And uh, it's been pretty successful. Mm -hmm. I guess I'm still not clear on why like what if they di why did they disappear were they chopped up or was it because of the hydrology because it was the construction the so there's a few things direct displacement for rice fields and so meaning they were chopped out they were right? they were chopped down the land was converted to agriculture and then there's quite a lot of damage with cattle so cattle was coming in and eating it there was there was cutting for for wood supply for burning and for building houses and and then there's been this pervasive change in the water supply and the hydrology, which has had an impact also. And why will the hydrology no longer have an impact? Or was that so marginal that it didn't matter? Well, the hydrology is going to have an impact. And so the margins will salinize. And gradually, this delta is contracting towards the center. Effectively, what remains of the river, it's, it's contracting in that way. And but what the project's allowing it to do is for it to adapt much more quickly to that. There's a lot of space here, and it's allowing the trees to be reestablished and, and get them back in the ground and slow the rate. I, I need to look at, we need to look at the numbers. I've seen a couple of different studies. Some are saying that net overall, there's still a loss of mangroves in the Indus. But then I've seen another study which said that the, the net changes is tending towards zero now. So we still need to work out exactly what that baseline is, but uh, we're going to look at it. And that's because of this project or just because uh, this project doesn't cover the whole Indus, right? It no, it covers, it covers the central part. So Sindh is on the east part, and then it's around the, where the river flows, and uh, where the Indus River flows. Over by Karachi, it's, uh, it's not covering that part of the area there. Now, so they, they were on a shoestring, the government was. Yeah. And now you've come in with carbon finance, or how, like, what are you bringing? Is this a carbon project, or? Yeah, well, the, uh, there's a company called Indus Delta Capital. Which are, uh, which are based out of London, but it's actually Pakistanis who started this company. And they're working with the Sindh Forestry uh, Department and Commission 
to uh, enact a carbon project. And they've been trying to build this for nearly eight years now, and they're getting really close to fruition. And the, the intent is that to accelerate the amount of planting which is taking place. You know, the, the SIN Forestry Commission actually have the world record now, I think, for number of uh, seedlings planted in a day. And they planted a, a, over a million seedlings in, in one day alone. A million in one day. A million in one day. And they did that, and it wasn't just a one-day thing. It was part of a, an ongoing process. It's part of an ongoing process. They started slowly 20 or 30 years ago, and they've been, over the last five years, you know, planting, you know, thousands of hectares per year, but they've kind of reached the limit of what they can do with the amount of money that they've got. And the hope is that we can bring in additional financing, which will improve the quality of life of the villages, as mentioned, with uh, medical facilities, etc. But they can actually go out and they can plant a lot more mangroves uh, each year. And that, and that I guess, and I guess, because that's always the thing with carbon finances, to get the carbon, to get a carbon payment, you have to show that you needed the money to execute the project, right? So what, like, what will the carbon payments make possible here? Well, it's, they, with the, under the VCS, you can get credit for a carbon project, anything up to five years before you submit your PD intent. And so, they'll be able to get uh, credit for, the, for the, the mangroves that they have planted over the last five years, and that's gonna help them actually finance stepping up to the, to the next part. Right, right, okay. Let's go back to the video here. So you can see the scale of it. So who's this? This is Raiz Ahmed Wagen, and he is the chief conservator of the forestry department of Sindh. And he is the guy that really has been out there for 30 years planting mangroves and working with the villagers. And they started doing this, you know, to try and do something about the, the loss of mangroves that was taking place, but also to, to work with the villagers to try and sort of maintain their quality of life. Okay. And he's probably not here in Madrid right now, right? No, we were hoping to try and get them all here for this meeting, but it didn't work out. But next year, we want to get them all here. Next year is this year, 2020 and it's not happening because of the pandemic. And I feel their pain in not having the budget to travel, or in my case, not having the budget to hire a sound engineer or maybe a second set of ears to give these shows a good critical listen before I polish them off and upload them, or even take a little time off of work so I can put more of my own time into these shows. If you listen to NPR or BBC or Deutsche Welle, where I come from, you know, listen to their podcast. It takes them several minutes sometimes to list all of the people who make each show possible. But I have just me, and only in my spare time. I don't even have all of me. If you want more Bionic Planet, then help me deliver it by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash bionic planet. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Bionic Planet. There you can support me for as little as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. The address again is patreon.com forward slash Bionic Planet. If money's tight, you can also help just by giving me a five-star review on whichever podcatcher you access me through. Remember, the more stars I get, the more ears I get. And the more ears I get, the more minds I can reach. And we must reach hundreds of millions of minds if we're to meet the climate challenge. We can do it if we all work together. 
Rise is one of those people that's just been out there doing this for years, you know, really under the radar. Somebody has just been out there trying to replant the mangroves, learning as he's been going along. So he actually knows how to do a, a pretty good job, but he's just one of those people that's been out there planting millions of trees. Yeah, there's so many of these guys out there, and they've been, they've been fighting the good fight and without any resources, and now we can finally get them something to work with. Absolutely. And these are the rice paddies you were talking about? These are, these are actually shrimp ponds. Okay. So there were a number of uh, shrimp ponds built, but it was a very small area. Mm -hmm. But just behind these, there are, there are rice fields. We'll probably see some later on in the video, maybe. Okay, and what happens? These shrimp ponds are going to be gone pretty soon, right? Yeah, there. these shrimp ponds will be gone. They'll be mangroves. They'll be mangroves. The, the villagers really didn't take to them. And so here you can see the square where the rectangular areas there. Yeah, I see that. It, looks, it almost looks like, a view of, looks like a view of Chicago from the... <laughs> from the Sears Tower yeah, it, 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 it like at that. the edge of a park and it looks like you've got these rows and rows of mangroves going on and on out to the horizon and up front you've got this rectangle with a few little clusters of trees and it looks like either a a river or, or a canal or a road going through it. I can't tell what that is. Yeah, a canal just along the edge and the river's just behind us. Okay. And so those rectangles, the abandoned rice fields that you see right there. Okay. And they actually extend in the distance, but they've been overprinted by the by the mangrove plantation. And this will also, the mangrove will move into this area then? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So it looks like we were just passing through, it looks like a dried out canal. Is that what that is? No, this is actually a natural tidal channel. And okay. so there are still some of these within around the rice fields, but in the more natural part of the delta also. As, as mudflats build up and become mangroves or marshes if you're in a, you know, further north, channels form at the same time. And the channels are incredibly important for con conveying water in and out of the site. And uh, they're incredibly important for fish, because you know, the, the small fish like to hide from big fish. And uh, so as the tide comes in, they need somewhere to go, so they go up the channel, and then they'll spread into the mangroves when the water covers the, uh, the sediments, the soil surface. What happens when the water goes out? Do the fish die? It just, just all goes back in the they same just, direction. They just trickle back in. Yes. The small fish like to hide in the, in the shallow water away from the big fish. So by small, you mean baby fish, or you mean small size, like adults that are just small both. species? Oh. Yeah, yeah, it could be both. And who's this here? So this is Alamgir Gandapa. He's actually a forestry commissioner also, just like Riaz. But Alamgir came down from the mountains for this project. And he was planting trees up in the mountain areas. The company is with, which is now called Indus Delta Capital, they were really trying to start a red project in the mountain areas. Um, but they found it too politically difficult. And so they started to look around where, which other provinces were easier to work with that had a red need. And so they eventually found themselves in the Indus Delta and working with the Sindh province. So red or reforestation, afforestation, or afforestation, reforestation? It's, it's a bit of both. So there's conservation, uh, management of cattle, management of wood cutting, and an awful lot of reforestation work. Now, why is there this thick blob of trees in the middle of these nice rows? Or, or is that rows? That does, is that replanted planted or is that? Yeah, actually, that's a, um, a good point there. So that, that blob of trees was actually the first plantation that uh, Riaz put out there, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Wow. And so, you know, it's still there. He just started out with a small plantation. And, and it's there. So you can see how they kind of develop. The trees don't get really big in the Indus Delta. You know, it is a saline environment. Mm -hmm. You're working with Rhizophora and you're working with Avicennia. But, you know, we have, it, we have a time series that goes back 30 years now so we can get a growth curve for the trees. So we get a good, pretty good projection mm -hmm. of how they're going to do. Gotcha. And again, the main thing, the thing is that the trees might be small, but the carbon's not in the trees, it's in the ground. Yes, exactly right. 
I'll, I'll tell you a story, Steve. Yeah. So there, were, there was one, well, there was a paper came out a couple of years ago, and I think it was Nature Geoscience, and it pointed out that the, the big deltas of the world, particularly around South Asia and East Asia, are really the, the conduit of carbon from the atmosphere down into the lithosphere because... The lithosphere is the ocean, the, the sea? Lithosphere, the lithosphere being, you know, the geology underneath us. And so deltas, these deltas are kilometers thick. And so when... Kilometers thick. Kilometers thick. And so when they take carbon out of the atmosphere, it gets buried. You know, this is a source of oil and, and gas. And uh, they, over 20 million years, have been extracting CO2 of the atmosphere and permanently burying it. Now, yeah. the consequence of that... Well, permanently until we come along and... Well, yes, probably, yeah, <laughs> yeah till oil companies come along and put it all back in the atmosphere. But, you know, when you do the calculations and you look how much CO2 that is, you know, that's, that's enough to take a, a hothouse world that existed 20 million years ago and then move us into the ice house world that we've had for the last 2 million years, just gradually extracting CO2 and burying it in these deltas. But, of course, as we've converted all these deltas to something else, that process has been just just truncated, it's gone. You know, so we've, we've, we've disrupted a, a 20 million year, year old process of taking CO2 out of the atmosphere. Okay, and how about the places that we were at in Vietnam all those years ago? Was that below sea level? I'm trying to remember. Yeah, indeed. The, that's right, Steve. Yes, the Red River Delta, that's where uh -huh. we were. Uh -huh. And uh, yeah, we drove like through 100, 100 miles of what used to be mangroves, but it was, was now, now rice fields rice, yeah. and, and the like. Mm -hmm. And all of that is going to be, it's already at risk of like when, when cyclones come through, it's all at sea level or below. And at some point in the future, it's all going to be, you know, mangroves again or subtidal. Right. And so this, I mean, I guess then it comes to an issue where if that's going to happen, then we in, in, in the industrialized world, we have two, two reasons to pay these people. One is we're we're it's our emissions that are causing this mess, so we should, you know, we have to pay them to help them adapt, but then we also have to help them to create mangroves, or will mangroves just naturally come back when they leave? Well, you know, if you can do it in a, a thoughtful, purposeful way, you're going to be much more likely to have a successful outcome, um, because you can put the mangroves back in the place where they will survive. But when things happen catastrophically, then you just get some sort of random outcome, which is, def which is more difficult to try and then engineer back to what you would really like to have. And so ideally, you want some sort of managed adaptation process where people are not fleeing from something, where the system is not responding to a catastrophic event, but actually some, some sort of managed planned approach. Of course, how good are we at that? You know, yeah. where in the world do you really see this happening? Well, the Netherlands. <laughs> what do you mean by a managed approach? Can well, you let's let's take another country as an example. Let's think about let's Guyana and Suriname, where we've been working recently. So most of the population lives on about eight percent of the of the country's area, and that's the coastal plain. The town of Georgetown is built up right against the edge, and uh, so levees are built right at the edge of where mangroves used to be. Everybody's living below the elevation of highest tides, and then they have this enormous country with very low population. And so, if you were thinking about it, you'd really now want to be moving upslope and move Georgetown to New Georgetown, you know, maybe five meters above the tide. And so you could be out of the way and then you do an adaptation strategy, maybe have your agriculture down on the coastal plain, 
but be able to pull out when storms come along so people are not at risk of flooding or start to restore your ecosystems and uh, bit by bit. But even for those countries which, you know, you're not moving a large population, but it's a lot of money for them, you know, they're, they're still not at the place where they have a decision about do they try and build more infrastructure like the Netherlands, which is incredibly expensive, it could become more and more expensive as time goes by, or do they develop a strategy where they try and move back out of, the, out of these areas. You know, we look at other places, Belize, they moved their capital city out of the floodplain uh, some years ago. Jakarta, they're looking at this now, they're moving Jakarta. They're moving Jakarta. Yeah. How did I not hear about that? Yeah. It's out there somewhere. It was announced last year. They're moving it to Borneo. Wow. So they're going to just abandon... I mean, Jakarta is such a densely populated, thick city, but it does flood all the time. I've been there a few times, and I always had to walk around with my pants rolled up. <laughs> yeah. So I, I can see why they would be doing that, but, but it's just... That's a massive undertaking. How do you move all those people... And, that, and then what happens, like, is it the whole city, even the part where the, where the capital is further inland, or is it the whole city? What are they? I don't know the details, but, you know, the way these things start is the federal agencies move. And so they go and they start... Like you know, when they move Bonn to Berlin, yeah, <laughs> basically the German yeah. capital. Yeah. yeah, you know, you move. it would be the same sort of thing in, in, in Georgetown. If you move the federal agencies, everything that's re related to the federal agencies will move with them. But then, you know, what happens to everything else, all that infrastructure? Are they just going to abandon it so we'll have mangroves in among streets? Yeah, that's, yeah. yeah. And nobody knows. That's a question. Mara. That's a question, I think. How much of the sea level rise is baked in already, and how much is avoidable? Oh, that's a really good question. You know, when you look at the rate of sea level rise that we have, and you compare that, you know, Ramsdorf's work was along these lines, and you compare it's it Stefan to... Ramsdorf? Stefan Ramsdorf? Stefan yeah. Ramsdorf, you know, at Potsdam. When you look at the geological record, at the amount of sea level rise that happens per amount of CO2, you know, with glacial cycles, we should have a lot more sea level rise than we do now. And so there's, it looks like there's a lot of hysteresis in the system. There's a lot of... Hysteresis? There's a, there's a lot of delay in the system, mm -hmm. you know. So energy's building up, there's going to be a shift, sea level rise is going to happen, and then we might try and reduce our CO2 levels, and it just continues because, you know, there's inertia in the system, effectively, rather than hysteresis. Basically, it's kind of like with the seasons. I guess that, in, in theoretically, like the late summer when the heat is, when it's hottest, we've already passed the, the hottest part in terms of the sun, but the heat, it took a while for us for the system to catch up. Yeah, exactly. The heat's well, you know, uh -huh. captured in the land and the water around you. And, uh, and that is likely to happen with, uh, with sea level rise also. There'll be that inertia in the system that we're already living with, the slow start, and it'll be slow to end as well. Mm. And then, of course, if we have issues with the collapse of ice sheets in, in Greenland and Antarctica, you know, then, then that will continue on for quite some time. It's very hard to reestablish an ice sheet again once it gets going. Yeah, because, so, because ice is so thick and it's all this thick coldness, and now it's... It's already melted deep down inside of it too, right? It's going to... Exactly. Yeah, once you get, you know, water flowing underneath an ice sheet, it's a lubricant that just allows the ice to flow frictionlessly. It just slides right off. It just slides right off. So, I guess that we're looking at the situation where we've got a certain amount of sea level rises baked into the system, and we don't really know how much is there. So, you, we could do all this mangrove restoration, and then a big sheet of ice, I mean... Uh, it could could it all be for naught, or is that too pessimistic? Well, you know, it's it, 
Well, the IPCC document said, you know, with, with sea level rise, we're going to lose between 20 and 90% of coastal wetlands. And that's a very big range. And so it basically means we're either going to, at one end, lose nothing, at the other end, lose everything. And of course, it's somewhere in between. But if you build an adaptation, it gives you the opportunity to maintain as much as possible. Now, if you have a nice gentle slope at the back and you don't put infrastructure in the way, that gives you a lot of adaptive capacity like they have in the Indus Delta. Mm. But if you have cities around the back, so one of the best things we could do is not expand cities and infrastructure in low-lying areas. One of the scarcest resources that we have in coastal systems is space. So create space where ecosystems can move as the climate is changing. And so create space elsewhere where cities can move and put them in, out of harm's way so we can put the ecosystems where they want to be along the coast. Turning to the U.S., maybe a city like Miami, is it, do we write that off? Is Miami over with? Oh, Miami's toast. Yeah. You know, you know because it, it, it's very low, but it, the rocks underneath it yeah. uh, are just porous. A, it's a sponge. And so you can't even build a wall around Miami because the water just comes up from below. So, yes, Miami is one of the most vulnerable places in the world. Wow. Chicago's okay, though, right? We're 182 <laughs> meters above sea level. You're doing okay in Chicago. <laughs> Everybody from Miami is going to move back to Chicago. <laughs> Some of them can come. <laughs> okay, so let's see. So going back to the mangroves, I think, um, I think we've covered... Is there something we should close with? I'm trying to think. We kind of did... We kind of swooped around a bit. Well, I think, you know, what's... There's a number of things we can sort of recognize here. One, you know, these villagers living in the Indus Delta are in a very poor state. You know, they don't have healthcare. And one of the villages we went to, we were told they have 90% hepatitis in that village. And so using some of this money to bring health services can be really beneficial to people which are just so far away from any other kind of infrastructure like that. And then the other thing to recognize, you know, like in the UK, they, they have an announcement that they want to plant one billion trees across, across the UK. This project alone is going to plant a billion trees in the Indus Delta. And uh, so that's a, it's a phenomenal number. Just the project. Just this one project is, mm -hmm. going, to be, is going to plant, a, this is over 50 years, but it's, you know, it's a billion trees. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's something that's pretty exciting. In the blue carbon world, you know, we've, we've looked at a lot of very small projects, but it's nice, really exciting, in fact, to find that there's big projects like this there that are out there. Mm -hmm. That's oceanographer, sedimentologist, and coastal ecosystem guru, Steve Crooks. You will not like me saying that. Closing out this edition of Bionic Planet. If you want more Bionic Planet, then help me deliver it by becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash bionic planet that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash bionic planet all one word bionic planet is one word no dots or dashes there you can support me for as little as one dollar per episode and with a monthly cap the address again is patreon.com forward slash bionic planet if money's tight, you can also help by giving me a five-star review on whichever podcatcher you access me through. Remember, the more stars I get, the more ears I get. And the more ears I get, the more minds I can reach. And we have to reach hundreds of millions of minds if we're to meet the climate challenge. We can do it if we all work together. And that wraps up today's show. From Chicago, I'm Steve Zwick. Thanks for listening. Oh.